you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. The dark days of winter are upon us here in the UK, and whether you're more of a sad lamp junkie or a lover of all things Christmas and festive, there is one thing you can rely on as we hit year's end, and that's our annual stock take of the winners and losers of the logistics and shipping industry. That's right, on this episode, the Lodestar will be delivering its collective verdicts on 2023 and doing its best to have a stab at what happens in 2024. But of course, the world of trade is in chaos right now, so first up, we'll be analysing the Suez crisis. And I'll be doing all this in the good company of the Lodestar's Alex Anain, Gavin Van Maal, and the one and only, it's my Wackit. So it's really fallen into the carrier's lap. They will say, of course, that they want to have uh, a good operation or whatever, but this has really soaked up that capacity that they desperately needed to soak up. And at the same time, they'll be getting huge amounts of extra revenue. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Now, as I'm sure you know already, you can find this podcast on all platforms. Please do like and review as it really does help us keep providing you with free content. We're also on the lodestar.com where you can subscribe to receive this podcast direct to your inbox and follow breaking supply chain stories from around the world. And honestly, there really is a lot breaking right now, isn't there? Now, I love this end of year podcast, but I have to admit we normally do it a bit earlier in the month because things tend to get a bit hectic in our industry with all these Christmas parties. So I'm hoping my guests today are all fighting fit. And for your enjoyment and fulfillment, we have the two wise-ish men and wiser woman of Lodestar Towers. It's Lodestar publisher Alex Lenane, managing editor Gavin Van Maal, and ocean shipping expert and correspondent Mike Wackett. Hello all. Do we have your best selves here? Or have you been worn down by all those parties? It's been brutal, to be honest, both the partying and the news. But yeah, just about surviving. Jaded. <laughs> it's my one word answer to that, Mike. Jaded. And Mike Wackett, what's, how are you? Yeah, well, I, I was accused by, well, I think it was some of the younger members of the Low Star team were sort of leading me astray, actually, on Thursday night at the Low Star Christmas party. But, you know, they may have a, another idea about that. I think it was down to tequila shots and how many of those we had. I think that was the slippery slope. I'll tell you what, I'm glad I left early. Right. We have serious news to do before we get on to the fun part of our annual roundup. That news, of course, is that container ships are diverting away from the Suez Canal. And the situation, while it's deteriorating rather rapidly, to recap, the part of Yemen controlled by the Houthi rebels is right on Bab al-Mandab, which is a narrow strait between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. Essentially, the entrance to the Red Sea, which is how you reach this Suez Canal, around about a thousand miles away. Ships passing through it are highly vulnerable and they're being attacked by the Houthis with missiles apparently supplied by Iran. Some of these weapons are anti-ship missiles capable of attacking vessels 800 miles away. Of course, this all ties in with Israel's war against Hamas. The Houthis say they will continue the attacks until more aid is given to Palestinians in Gaza. Although, given that only 5% of Israeli trade goes via its Red Sea port of Eilat, and many of the ships attacked have neither Israeli ownership nor were scheduled to call at its port. This is hard to make sense of. Is this to get the attention of the world? Is this being directed by Iran or not? Will these attacks continue at the moment? No one knows for sure. The most 
immediate loser would appear to be Egypt, which operates the Suez Canal. Mike, what's the latest situation in terms of the attacks and how container lines are responding as we talk today on the 19th of December? Basically, the the carriers really having said they'll pause voyages, etc., and some were already rerouting via the Cape, then they're pretty much all saying, right, we're going to reroute around the Cape. That's obviously okay for the ships that are in that space, but obviously you still have ships that, for instance, have have actually transited the Suez Canal southbound and uh, they have a dilemma of what to do, whether you proceed down and face attack by the Houthi rebels from their drones, etc., or you you go back through the Suez Canal and pay another half million dollars worth of tolls, etc. So, yeah, it's very fluid. I mean, you've got the US-led international navy there that's going to provide more or less a convoy, but I think that um, until everybody's assured that if you like, the attacks have stopped and that the insurers in particular are happy with that, then I think we're going to see ships continue to reroute around the Cape. I mean, it really is hard to understate how potentially disruptive this could be. The Economist is calling it a new Suez crisis, probably with good reason when you consider 12% of global trade by volume goes through the Suez Canal, 30% of global container traffic and and then I guess also you consider that back in during the pandemic, 23rd of March, 2021, we had the container ship ever given rammed its bow into the eastern bank of the Suez Canal. And that was blocked for less than a week. But trade valued at over $10 billion a day was stuck. And we saw this domino impact on supply chains for months afterwards. Gav, there's a lot of stake here for global supply chains, isn't there? There is. I mean, it remains to be seen what the impact of this particular crisis will be. And I think that's fair to say that it is a crisis, right? I mean, the situation today is very different from 2021. You know, you had a massive COVID hyper demand. There was a lot of existing port congestion anyway. So all you needed at that point was something to block the Suez Canal for a week. And it really sort of snowballed all the problems that are being seen elsewhere. So today is very different. Freight rates are very, very low. There's very little port congestion other than in certain spots that we will talk about later. Um, so I think for supply chain managers that uh, the key thing here will be how quickly will those ships get moving again? Or, as Mike just said, will it be a case that for an extended period of time they're going to have to be travelling a longer route and supply chains will lengthen accordingly? I would like just to make one point about this, though. You know, Suez lurches from crisis to crisis, pretty much. I mean, having a crisis in Suez is a is almost like a semi-regular event. When people consistently, when the Ever Given got stuck, it was described as a black swan event. Conveniently forgetting, Suez has been closed for seven years during the 1970s. So my point here is that really problems at Suez should be hardwired into supply chain strategy planning. It should be an ever-constant threat that something could happen at Suez. Alex, let's assume this drags on a bit, as I think we probably have to, and we start getting manufacturers and retailers running out of inventory. Are you hearing or expecting anything in air cargo markets? I mean, as we've just discussed there with the Ever Given, any shipping snarl up quickly causes shortages that lends itself to an air freight bonus, I guess. Yeah, that, I mean, that's traditionally what happens. I mean, I was chatting to forwarders this morning. They were saying they think it's ever given times 100. So maybe that's more in hope than than reality. I don't know. 
But yeah, they were warning that air freight is likely to get very busy. Ship is looking to restock after Christmas. And then there's sort of emergency items that are now stuck on ships. They're going to have to order more and then air freight them. But before this even happened, we'd already been hearing a lot about charter rates going up. We'd heard of rates of about $1.6 million one way. And there's a lack of availability at the moment. So I think the freight operators are watching very closely and it could help them get through January. And many people are saying it's a sort of silver bullet that everyone was hoping for. Uh, Yeah, there's always an upside. I just still very briefly, Mike, while we're talking about all these sort of supply chain disruption, we found out today that the um, U.S. Customs Border Protection has just closed three rail crossings on the U.S.-Mexican border with 10,000 rail cars stranded. So there's snafus wherever you look. There certainly is. I was just about to to go through the background on, on Panama Canal. Now, some of this feeds into that U.S.-Mexico traffic because it, it's all interconnected. Obviously, we've got the worst drought in history, as Lodestar.com has been reporting constantly on the Panama Canal. There's been higher costs, vessel reroutings, offloadings. We've had a bit of rain there in the last few weeks, and things might improve marginally, but it will take a while for things to get back to normal. It's pretty unprecedented to have two of the world's most important shipping arteries in total chaos at the same time. And that's even without mentioning we've got a war in the Black Sea as well. The fact is that that some ships heading from Asia to the U.S. East Coast via the Panama Canal had already been routed via Suez. That strategy is now in tatters, is it, Mike? Absolutely. I think a number of carriers, including, I think it's three strings of the Alliance's Asia to U.S. East Coast services, 6th of December, I think it was, they announced that they were, due to the um, restrictions in the Panama Canal, they were going to henceforth reroute their ships via the Suez. And then a week later, of course, if you look at their new network, their Panama is back on, depending on the situation of Panama. So yeah, I mean, plan A goes to plan B, back to plan A, effectively. A mess, essentially. Okay, the uh, I'm sure we'll come back to the two canals later on, but let's have a look back at 2023. Mr. Wackett, give me your big winners of the year, please. Uh, no freight rates. We'll come to that later. Yeah, I think let's start with the big winner. I mean, the big winner really in ocean freight is MSC because um, from, I think it was August 2020, they started hoovering up secondhand tonnage. I think to this date, they've acquired or purchased uh, around about 400 ships on the S&P markets. So that enabled them, along with their considerable order book, by January of this year to inch ahead of Nurse with something like about 4.5 million TU of capacity. But they're currently well stretched that lead to 5.5. And they've got this enormous order book of 1.5 million TU which on its own would, would rank them as the eighth largest container carrier in the world, just behind Evergreen. So there's just really no, no stopping them. Second winner for me really is the non-operating container ship owners. I, I mean, unlike the carriers, they have contracts, charter parties effectively, for which when freights were quite good, some of the carriers got quite carried away and chartered ships for quite considerable periods at quite high rates. And those charter parties are pretty much set in stone. It's quite unusual for somebody to welch on a charter party. On freight rates, of course, we all know what happens. And either side, people tear those contracts up. So those non 
operating owners have been able to sit on this backlog of revenue for this year, even while freight rates, ocean freight rates have been coming down considerably. Their charter rates for, for new charters anyway have been coming down, but they've still been earnings, very good numbers in excess of operating revenues, which means that they're quite happy. And in the meantime, they've unencumbered most of their ships. So they've got rid of the mortgages, et cetera. So they've been sitting pretty in this year and really they could go on for another year, maybe another two years before some of those charges even expire. So I think really they're the number two winners in my eyes. Alex Linane, your winners, please. Well, I, actually, Mike, I couldn't think of any winners this year. So um, I called Neil Vandervaal at Zanetta because he's a very optimistic kind of person. And I said, who's a winner this year? And he correctly pointed out that, in fact, there are a lot of winners this year, although it might not feel like it. Low freight rates, in theory, should pass on to the consumers. So we're all winners. That's a nice end to the year, isn't it? In air freight, the um, other winners you could say are passenger airlines. They've finally seen traffic numbers rebound, but, you know, we're in freight, so that hasn't helped particularly. And also in air booking platforms, they do well when everyone's on the spot market. So they've had a lot of traffic. They may not be profitable. In fact, they're not profitable. But low spot rates, lack of contracts has meant that they've gained quite a lot of traction in the market. Oh, and one final thing is that today it was announced that DB Schenker is finally up for sale. So there could be a winner appearing shortly. Maybe not working at DB Schenker, though. Gavin Van Morrell. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Rather depends who the buyer is, doesn't it? Depends on the buyer. Sorry for being a cynic. Uh, Mr. Van Mol, uh, who what's your biggest winner? Is it the Lodestar Major with hedging beta, perhaps? What is that? What's a Lodestar Hedger as well? Is Mike one? <laughs> well, we all are one here. Yeah. Um, it's so the uh, this was announced last week that that the Lodestar has formed a holding company with our long standing partners, which is a, a very bespoke, very leading edge digital marketing agency called Hedging Visa. Thus, the Mer the holding company's name, Lodestar Hedge Holdco. Firstly, it's a formalisation of a long standing partnership. As I said, um, brings together. The talent, if you like, the employees, I mean, we're, both companies are in the intelligence business and our biggest assets are our people. So we pooled together the programmers and software developers that Hedging Beta have with the market intelligence that the Lodestar staff bring. What it then does is it creates a combined vehicle for us to be able to explore other opportunities, be they in publishing or tech or associated sort of sectors, if that makes sense. Does that make sense, Mr. Van Moore? It all sounds very interesting. I think we'll just watch this space. Well, Gav, your biggest loser in 2023. Well, I think China is. I think China's had a very, very hard... Well, it's had a very, very tough time since COVID, hasn't it? Because let's face it, it doesn't look like it really ever got rid of COVID. And I must say the scenes coming from northern China of hospitals overflowing with children suffering acute respiratory diseases doesn't exactly fill one with confidence. And we know that, that a lot of the Chinese economy's current weakness was largely due, it was, was affected by its inability to get control of COVID and the fact it went into these radical lockdowns and how that hit economic activity. But at the same time, there is this unquestionably the China plus one, if you want to call it the de-risking strategy of multinationals has escalated over 2023. 
in response to heightened tensions with the US, in response to the ever-present, ever-growing threat of an invasion of Taiwan. And some of these have resulted in policies. You look at Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and the very specific strictures that it places on Chinese battery makers. These are serious threats to China's long-term economy. And it's not just in electric vehicles and high-tech stuff. I mean, it's, the U.S. Department of Commerce did a survey of apparel and footwear importers into the U.S., and, and 61% of them, China, is no longer the top sourcing destination. The U.S. China Chamber Business Chamber, 35% of its members have stopped their investments in China, up from 22% last year. And tellingly, Nearly 80% of them said that this was because of the tensions and the uncertainty surrounding relations. And just as a sort of guide to how foreign investors are viewing their operations in China, I I read a remarkable article in the FT a couple of days ago, in which they were talking about increasing numbers of when people send their executives to China, and they now include Hong Kong in this. They're being told to leave their corporate work phones, their corporate laptops at home, take burner phones, use a cheap computer. It's like there is the faith that you need to conduct good business seems to me to be getting thinner and thinner. You do hear that. You just meet people, don't you? They're like, do you want to go and work in China? The answer is no quite often. Do you want to go to a conference in China? Increasingly, no, because you don't have your communications. And if you're a really high powered executive, you're worried what might happen and what you might be accused of because this has happened and it increases the risk for anyone who's going over there. Very hard to run a business if you don't want to go to the country or your senior staff don't want to. Of course, the other big thing there, Gav, that you sort of touched upon, we think about Taiwan. I mean, if Taiwan's a massive producer of semiconductors. If we have a shortage of semiconductors because China is threatening Taiwan, of course, you can understand why companies are looking at more resilient supply chains. Um, on which point I'm going to throw my little bit in here. Uh, I think Taiwan, that sort of indicates where I'm going as, in terms of my biggest losers, losers, peace and globalization, which we covered a bit on a, a Lodestar podcast last month on geopolitics. We've got war in the Middle East, the Black Sea. There's all these problems in Africa, political uncertainty all over the place, division in Western democracies. Feels like we've got a hardening of alliances between countries and maybe a more, more multipolar worlds emerging. And it, it sort of feels like Henry Kissinger maybe died at the wrong time because he did a lot of things wrong, but he was able to deliver some sense of diplomatic harmony between the US and China. And, and it feels like only better relations between those two might make some of these other problems go away. And there's not just these problems where we've got these wars breaking out, but this new world, it's threatening things like international trade organizations, the UN, WTO. We've got these massive global challenges on climate change and artificial intelligence. So I'm going to be as optimistic as Neil as Zenitor, I think, and try and fend up some festive goodwill. And I want more collaboration and less confrontation, I think. Politicians who value peace over pontificating. And that's my pontificating done. Uh, Although I suspect I'm going to have to be challenged on this. Gavin, I can see you waving at me. I didn't. I mean, great. Lovely words. Didn't know who a loser or a winner was. I've only had my losers, Gav. The loser is peace and globalization. Pay more attention, please. Moving quickly on, Alex, give us your biggest losers. Um, I think someone else is going to say this, but there's been quite a lot of losers this year, but I, we definitely should mention job losses because there have been a lot. But I, th- I think might come on to that perhaps. 
But in air, I'd like to say IATA is a big loser. <laughs> you can quote me on that. It's sort of released its grip on the air cargo industry. And I'm not entirely sure why. Cargo provides a lot of, a lot of revenue stream. But it's it seems to be sort of its lack of presence in the markets suggests it has hopes of somehow fading away. I'm not sure what's going on there. Startup companies, startup digital forwarders, supply chain visibility platforms, all have had a tough year. And there's companies that made a fortune in the pandemic. We got DP World, AD Ports, MSC, CMA buying up a lot of stuff. I would say it's not yet known whether they're winners or losers, but they've got everything to play for in integrating all of that. Alex, if IATA's losing then, who who's winning? Are you going to say Tiaka? <laughs> well, that, that makes it seem slightly ironic. But yes, I am going to say Tiaka because um, I think it's doing a pretty good job, actually. And I think it's doing the job that IATA should be doing and isn't. So yeah, well done, Tiaka. Well Winner. done, everyone at Tiaka. That's what we always thought as well. Mike Wackett, what <laughs> or who is your biggest loser? Yeah, really, just what Alex said there, really. I think the redundancies and what we've seen, for instance, with Maersk, with their 10,000 job cuts over the course of the year. And um, a lot of folios have gone to the wall or are going to the wall. I mean, there's a lot of zombie companies out there. I mean, Hauliers forwarders where their margins are so slim, et cetera. So they're the losers. Obviously, ironically, carriers, if you like to put the year into two, were the biggest losers in the second half of the year. I mean, most of them started to go trade into the red. Even Maersk line, EBITs was 27 billion for the container line, a loss. So biggest losers really, I mean, but you know, you've got to say those job cuts, you've got to feel for those guys. And some of these guys that were really putting in those extra miles during the pandemic periods, some of them didn't get those big bonuses that, that the companies did get in Asia. And there they are, not probably with, with just a tin of biscuits to go away with. And I guess the container shipping lines, they've got to be losers in 2023, haven't they? I know that the Bichildu should make a collective profit or the big lines are. They're looking at losses next year. How would you explain the story of ocean freight rates in 2023, Mike? I think necessarily they, they may not be looking at losses next year. It depends on how all this goes on. But freight rates, of course, they're just looking at Zenith's XSI North Europe rates. A year ago, their average rates for 40 foot was 2026. They'd gone down that pretty much fourth by July of this year. And then there was a little bit of a pickup in August where a GRI seemed to work, but then it fell right down below $1,000. Bear in mind, these are average rates. So what I see in the market and some of the stuff we get from the Chinese forward is they were coming up 800, 750 or whatever. It was getting quite silly. I mean, subsequently, they've recovered several GRIs. The last XS, XX, XSI from Zenita was 1459, but I already heard from Zenita that they had a big 20% spike over the weekend, and that's going to just be turbocharged this coming week. What are we seeing today? Apart from the GRI's FAK rates that they're wanting to introduce on the 1st of January of $3,000 a 40 foot, then we saw one, for instance, they putting on an emergency peak season surcharge of $500 a TU due to the demand, should we say. But I mean, obviously, it's unfortunately... That's not gone well with a couple of my forwarding contacts, I must say, because 
Firstly, you're looking to see how your carriers are going to get your cargo through, not immediately thump you with a uh, with an emergency peak season surcharge. For US West Coast and the US in general, they've done better. I mean, effectively a year ago, uh, what we got 1,500 for a 40 foot. That was pretty much the same last week. So certainly on the West Coast, and obviously that's been helped by the new uh, labor agreement and also the Panama Canal, which is a situation which has brought more cargo into the West Coast. So, I mean, the biggest loser on rates really has been the transatlantic. That market has just been destroyed from a robust market where you could bank on $2,000 a 40 foot to less than $1,000 and and that can't continue. Right. Just for our listeners who don't follow the shipping market that well. A lot of long-term contracts on the Trans-Pacific, they're negotiated May, June. Asia-Europe tends to be the turn of the year. Now, if you look at what is happening with sewers and how it affects that Asia-Europe market where those long-term contracts are being negotiated, we're going to end up with some, some people, who, if, they, if they've got them done early, they're in a great position. But those spot rates are all over the place right now, and we're expecting that to continue maybe for the next few weeks, possibly it could go anywhere, really. What does that mean? How will people approach this now? Well, a week is a long time in politics and shipping, and, and that's what you have. I mean, you had carriers I know were actually walking away from deals because they were sub-economic. So shippers were quite happy to carry on running with those spots. And now, of course, some of the deals that were done, whether they will be honored or not, is another question. I mean, those new contracts, shippers will be biting their arms off to, to get new contracts now just to get some stability into their supply chain. Yeah, those strategies exposed to the Asia-Europe spot market are probably going out the window. Gav, we've got a lot of surcharges to look at as well. I mean, we've just talked about low water surcharges, war surcharges. We've got the EU's emissions trading system surcharges that lines are negotiating with shippers at the moment. It's a lot to get your head around. Who comes out well on this? It's not going to be SME shippers, is it? I wouldn't have thought so. No, I do agree with Mike. I mean, I, I, I don't think many contracts actually have been signed. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see the result of these, you know, successive low rate freight environment carriers simply not. I mean, the, the sentiment out of carriers is that they're not willing to even discuss contracts at the moment because they know that the levels won't be high enough. So I wouldn't be at all surprised to see some sort of permanent shift and at some point or either you people are signing six months deals or or will the Asia contract season calendar be shifted to run from February to February or something like that. If you go back to a similar situation post-global financial crisis, and the people who won out of that, you know, massive overcapacity, really low freight rates, the only people who were sort of dipping their toes in the market were the big forwarders who would use the low freight rate environment to buy block space, you know, big blocks of TU on particular sailings at pretty low rates, and then use that to go and nick customers from their competitors. There was a lot of that. We saw a lot of that. And that, and it was, I mean, I can name, if, I wouldn't name them because that'd be unfair. And it was 10 years ago, but there were some very big, well-known household name 3PLs who were specifically targeting the customers of a lot of SME forwarders through freight rate arbitrage, basically. Well, when these first quarter results come out for the big forwarders and 3PLs, we'll see if any of them did get those Asia Europe deals through. I guess we might get a few hints when those financial announcements are made because there could become quite big disparities on those profits on the Asia Europe trade, depending on when those rates were negotiated. Alex, air cargo rates, please tell us what happened in 2023. 
Just briefly on the contract rates and shipping, I spoke to a forwarder this morning that had signed up for next year with the ocean carriers. The ink was still wet and the carrier ripped it up. So there you go. In air freight, yeah, it's been um, a poor market. Everyone knows that. Rates are still higher than they were pre-COVID, but so are fuel prices and labour costs and everything else. But if you just look at the shape of the rates over the year, you can see that early in December this year, rates are about the same as they were at the end of last year. So we do have that sort of curve, that normal traditional curve appears to have come back. China, Europe had a bit of choppiness in Q1, smooth fall into July and a gradual increase since then. This is all from the TAC index, by the way. China, US was similar, but it had a much greater spike in November and it hit a real peak in the first two weeks of December at uh, 7.52 a kilo, which is healthy. Uh, transatlantic, obviously awful, passengers are back. And uh, Europe to China has just been a gentle decline. And airlines have had a lot to deal with the last few years. Pandemic, then this drawback on revenues, rates came off, a minimalist peaks, so I'm going to put that name on it, last two years. Have they learned any lessons, would you say, airlines, freighter operators? I think they have, actually. I think they've been more agile. They've focused much more on their premium products. They're picking better yield cargo. That may not be through choice. A lot of the lower value, lower yield cargo has gone back to ships and it was being flown during COVID. But the airlines have seemed to have really improved their focus on high yield products. You're seeing, I mean, e-commerce, they've got their game together. There's Pharma, Express. I think they're doing better at all this stuff than they were in the past. Mike, we've had a, a shipload. So, see what I did there, guys? <laughs> shipload. Thank you. You're welcome. Ship. I can do this all day. Are you here all right? <laughs> new, Mike, new vessels joining uh, the fleet next year have, I mean, it's a totally different environment than it was two weeks ago. There's still a lot of excess capacity, even if people are going around the Cape or isn't there? Well, effectively, I mean, depending on which analysts you listen to, this um, extended sort of Cape voyages could soak up maybe a quarter of capacity. So effectively, you go back to uh, the COVID boom demand times. There is a stack, a shed load of, of ships coming on. Right? Well, we've had 7% fleet growth in 2023, and you've got another two and a half million TU being delivered next year. That's 9% and uh, probably another two and a half million the year after. So so yes, it was all going the wrong way with demand, obviously, as you could imagine, struggling to get out to the small single digit figures. So yes, they, they, they were in trouble. What they needed to do and what to a certain extent they were doing was some success, actually, I have to say. It was that really judicious sort of fleet management, tying up their capacity, blanking as much, even suspending certain services. And that was having an impact prior to this black swan event. But obviously now it's a whole different ball game. And if they get off to a good start, you've got the Chinese New Year on 10th of February. So this will take them through and who knows what will happen after that. So it's really fallen into the carrier's lap. They will say, of course, that they want to have a good operation or whatever, but this is really soaked up that capacity that they desperately needed to soak up. And at the same time, they'll be getting huge amounts of extra revenue. I did actually ask a couple of carriers if they wanted to come on and comment today. They weren't available. They said they were too busy um, dealing with comms. But Gav, did you want to say something? 
we did some reporting that the way that the blankings and suspension of sailings were being taken, like often at very, very short notice, was really messing with a lot of supply chains and a lot of shippers were finding it very difficult to deal with the sort of how do I reorganize at such short notice that they've counterintuitively, there was also been an uptick in what we used to know as premium container services, guaranteed time definite. As you say, I mean, I've interviewed quite quite a few people about this and everyone was expecting reliability to decrease as blank sailings increase, if I can yeah. put it like that. Okay, guys, which story or trend really caught your imagination in 2023? I've got one, Mike. We've heard a lot about e-commerce and air freight over the last, well, three or four months. I mean, the word Timu, which I've never heard of before October, now seems to come up every single day which I believe is a Chinese e-commerce platform for those that haven't heard it yet. So you might think that Christmas is now pretty much being bought. Everyone's done their shopping. E-commerce won't have as much of a grip. But I do think there's going to be things to watch. One is how traditional forwarders are dealing with e-commerce and whether they've got their act together. Uh, but most of all, I think that regulators are going to start having more scrutiny over this. I keep hearing about illegal operations, misdeclarations, on dangerous goods, VAT, customs, taxes. I don't think it's being properly applied and I don't think it's being properly regulated. And sooner or later, I think it's going to, oh, I was about to say blow up, hopefully not blow up, but um, I think that there will be a lot more scrutiny over that, particularly the market we're hearing about is China, Europe. I think there's going to be a big focus on that next year. Well, I'll take us back to the last podcast that I came on to, and it's MSC's entrance into Hamburg and its partial takeover of HHLA, which is now almost certain to go through. The only remaining barrier, the shareholding thing has been captured, you know, they've got enough shares. So it just remains to be voted through in Hamburg's parliament, which I think should be, I mean, it's expected to go through. And I think that'd be very interesting to see what sort of transformation that affects on MSC itself as it sort of transitions from being a shipping line to operating a sort of pan-European rail network. And Mike, Mr. Wackett, what caught your imagination in 2023? I think the stories that I was quite interested in was this refocusing the way from the traditional east-west trade lanes and looking up secondary trade lanes and um, smaller trade lanes development of other trade lanes, Asia, Africa, Asia, Latin America, et cetera, and really moving away from that need to always be with the big ships on those big trade lanes and, and knowing that you can make some money out of the secondary lanes and that you don't need those big ships to do that. And as Gav said earlier on, the, the niche sort of services and the premium services that could capture a certain amount of market where you've got a reliability with a little bit extra money, but you can depend on that service not to be blanked, not to be trenchships, the cargo not to be trenchships somewhere, etc. So they were those sort of stories. And I think that was as the year was going on and the boom was definitely over and carriers needed to look ahead to see where they'll be going in the future. Yeah, that was interesting, Mike. You record the podcast that we did with Lars Jensen. I thought one of the great bits about that when he was, really, he was talking about the evolving of the Indian Ocean Rim as this new sort of market. And I went away and looked at the sort of markets that you're talking about. You know, you combine India with East Africa and then other places such as Indonesia, which they've still got to go through quite a lot of economic development in terms of their trade and infrastructure. 
And you look at the demographics, the populations are so young. These are the populations that are going to be growing up and having families and sending their kids to school and all that sort of stuff that they're going to need. And so the economic sort of development in that, that Indian Ocean Rim, very interesting. And, he, and a lot of big new ports, the Visinyam port in southern India and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, oh, you're dead right. If you look looking at where to put a, a new manufacturing plant that involved tens of thousands of people, like some of those big Foxconn ones in China do, you wouldn't necessarily look at China if demographics was your main nice. uh, draw. But obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I can tell you where there is a port that's got lots of capacity, Hamban Tota in Sri Lanka, which I was at a few weeks ago. I think, what, almost 20 years in? And there, there's this high-speed toll road that's supposed to go right up to Colombo. And there was cows on it. And I can see the whole free trade area. I've got a picture. Uh, if anyone's interested, I'll put it on social media. Okay, guys, uh, I know what, uh, this is a sort of downer to finish on, but it's not really a downer. I'm, I'm looking, what stories disappointed you, but what would you like to see less of in the coming year? How could our industry be better? How could the world be better in terms of as it affects our, our lodestar remit? I think I'm going to go to South Africa, which is a country I have a huge amount of affection for and which has just been so chronically mismanaged over the past two, two and a half decades in, term, in terms particularly of Transnet. But, you know, added shout out to ESCOM, the electricity board, which manages to plunge the entire country into darkness for several hours every day. What did we say? Mid-November, we reported that South African ports had 96 vessels outside at anchor waiting to berth. Congestion's not due to be cleared up until mid-jam. The litany of managerial mistakes that have been made across South Africa's container terminals over the last 15 years is, well, one, it's long. <laughs> and two, it's it's crippling. They, you know, it's they think, they think it costs the South African economy something like four billion rand a day in congestion, not just at Transnet's ports, but also in Transnet's rail network. And for a country that relies and has such abundant natural resources and relies on the exports of those resources, not just coal, but also the, the fresh fruits and the wines and all that lovely stuff that comes from there, it's just tragic. They've, they've actually formed a thing called the National, so the National Logistics Crisis Committee, and it's actually headed by the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa. I really, really hope that they come up with some decent solutions to resolve their issues because they don't deserve it. And Mr. Wackett? I, I think really uh, last minute cancellations of ships. I mean, it's fine to in advance blank a ship, but without very little notice at all, given precious little time for a shipper to be able to change their supply chain routes. Communications are still pretty poor between carriers and shippers. It's better, of course, than during the pandemic when they pretty much sacked all their sales guys, et cetera, so they didn't need it. And the fact that it's digital is important, but it's still a people business and you still need that one-to-one -one contact with your account manager uh, if something goes wrong. And, uh, you know, the companies that succeed realize that. I think that it's, it's a combination of things that you need to be a successful line. Alex? The most disappointing story was, was Israel-Palestine. It was just heartbreaking. The human cost to that was just extraordinary. And yeah, there's not much you can say about that. It was really disappointing. But outside of geopolitics, in air freight, our top story this year was Polar and its badly behaved executives 
And I think that this, outside of what they did, I'm, I'm disappointed in the parent and DHL and Atlas Air for not standing up to be counted, not saying publicly what happened, why it happened, and how we prevent it from happening again. That's I think, was disappointing. I think if you see a problem, let's talk about it. Let's find out why, what, and stop it from happening again. So less corruption and less war would be great, wouldn't it? Okay, that sounds. Uh, that's all. That's all we want, guys. Just less corruption and less war. That's all the Lone Star asks for for Christmas. Okay, it, it's a bit silly to put to finish. What's your song for twenty twenty four? And on that note, I went to his school, so I'm having John Lennon's "Give Peace a Chance." Fire away. I'm going with because of all the job losses, uh, career opportunities by the Clash. Excellent. I am the resurrection by the Stone Roses. Well, we're, we're all hoping you have another sabbatical, Gav. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mr. Wackett to finish off. Well, I'd, I'd sort of stick with the Beatles theme, I think, like, and um, we didn't touch on it particularly, but obviously we've got 2M Alliance that's dissolving sometime next year. It could be a bit sooner than we, th- we thought. There could be a lot of, of um, merry-go-round of other carriers and effectively when they all get together, it's really, um, what's the song with a little, little help from my friends? I mean, Beatles classic, but best sung by, best sung by Joe Cocker. <laughs> Excellent. What a way to finish. Alex Lane, Low Stop Publisher, Gavin Van Mall, Managing Editor, Sea Freight Correspondent, Mike Wackett. Thanks for joining me today on this final Low Star podcast of 2023. We'll be back with you in the new year. Thanks very much, Mike. Cheers. Thank you, Mike. All the best to you. And can we wish our listeners a very happy Christmas and a prosperous 2024? I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. 